This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew 5, 27 through 30. You can find this on page 810 in the Bibles in the back of your pew. Matthew 5, 27 through 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Good morning. Let's pray. Lord, we we come to you in the name of Jesus because of his finished work, because of the way that he has made for us through his broken body, through his shed blood, through his resurrection, through the gift of the spirit. We come before you and we ask you this morning to come and meet with us as we open your word. God, I ask that your word would shine a light into our hearts that you would give a spirit of revelation, a spirit of illumination upon the truth of your word, that we might see you more as beautiful and glorious. God, and I ask this morning as we come to another, what might be perceived as difficult and costly text, I ask that you would give us, that you would convince us by your spirit, that your commandments are for our good, they are for our joy, they are for our life, they are for your glory. And I ask that you would let us glimpse into the reality of sin and its exceeding sinfulness and that you would let us at the same time see your glory and its exceeding delightfulness, majesty, magnificence, joy. God, meet with us this morning. We ask in your name and for your glory. Amen. Amen. So we're picking up our time in the Sermon on the Mount uh, in these six statements that Jesus is making related to sins that tempt the human heart and the way that they uh, stand against us and how he invites us to actively resist them in partnership with his grace. But I want to give us a little introduction just to situate us yet again. We've been in the Sermon on the Mount for quite some time now, a couple months, and we've noted again and again that the Sermon on the Mount is... Jesus' most comprehensive teaching on what it means to partner with his grace, pursuing a life of wholehearted obedience around the things that he calls beautiful, the things that he calls valuable, the things he calls good. Letter B, the sermon begins with the eight Beatitudes that we're all familiar with, which are Jesus' most succinct portrait of what the value system of his kingdom looks like. It's a picture meant to show us what is valuable in the eyes of God. The presence and the growth of these values in our lives make up the substance of our discipleship before God. Like These are the things that we need to look at in some ways like the litmus test of our growth in and partnership with the grace of God as we're conformed into the image of Christ as his disciples. And these also become the measure of true and lasting greatness in God's kingdom. 
What we saw last week was in this uh, section, Jesus begins uh, to, to tell us and teach us about six particular sins that we must actively seek to resist in partnership with his grace as we pursue cultivating wholehearted obedience to Jesus. Letter E, each of these are introduced by a formula where Jesus highlights what his hearers would have been familiar with, whether the teaching of the Old Testament or the the exposition of the rabbis among the day. And we see this again and again as it starts with, you've heard it said, or it is said these things. And then he expands on that and brings new light to that by showing, but I say to you, where he demonstrates the true spirit of the law and invites his disciples to practice walking in the opposite spirit from these inner dispositions. It's important that we understand, again, that Jesus is not presenting this as some new law in front of us, or maybe even a deeper law. If he was doing so, I think it's uh, helpful for us to see this. If he was doing so, Jesus would be really adamant to show us or command us not to walk in these things. Right? Jesus doesn't come along and say, you've heard it said that you shouldn't murder people, but I'm telling you not to even be angry. That's not what he says. What he says is, uh, when you see the evidences of anger or lust, as we're going to look at today, at work in your soul, the spirit of what that law was about is already at work inside of you. So therefore, when you see that at work, here are ways to actively partner with my grace to resist the fruition of that sin in your life. This is what he's inviting us into. So he shows us how to walk in the opposite spirit from these inner dispositions. This is what Jesus is doing as he gives us applications or practices to break the cycle of these sins and their effects in our hearts and in the, heart, in the lives of others. Look at letter H. Jesus concludes this teaching of this section by exhorting his believers to walk in wholehearted obedience in every area of their lives in active pursuit of his grace. That's what the statement at the end in, in verse 48 is about when he says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. He's not attaining or, or setting out some uh, yardstick of sinless perfection. What he's saying is he's inviting you into a wholehearted response in obedience to his teachings. And wholeheartedness can just be defined as not having any areas of your life where you are complicit with or complacent about known sin, right? Like you're not hiding places or you're not actively seeking to press into the grace of God there. This isn't about still being immature or still being a a work in progress, not yet having full victory over something. This is about every area that the Lord has shown you uh, through revelation, through his word about your life, where you struggle with these sins, you are seeking to wage war on them. And waging war just looks like this. It's acknowledging them through repentance. Repentance is that was sin, and it's outside of God's uh, good plan and design, and we acknowledge it as such. We come to the Lord to receive his forgiving power and grace, and we ask him for strength to overcome it. Now, we might stumble in it several times. We might continue to uh, find ourselves in places of weakness, but every time we stumble into that, we again come to him, repent for it, receive his grace, set our hearts to walk in obedience and ask him for the strength to do it. That's what wholehearted obedience means, and that's what Jesus is inviting us into. The commandments of Jesus are intended to both recognize the severity of sin. This is like a spiritual cancer or a poison at work in our hearts. This is what Jesus wants us to uh, be alerted to. He wants the light on the dashboard to flash warning, warning, 
warning. This thing will kill you. He wants us to recognize the severity of sin and he is intent to maximize our joy in him. What it means to be fully alive. Now, the reason I want to highlight that yet again is if we do not understand those two realities in the commandments that are given to us here, we will miss out and distort what Jesus is inviting us to. And I think oftentimes we will draw back from pursuing wholehearted obedience. The commandments of God are not about killing your joy or keeping you from having fun. That's a really important thing to remember. He's not in the business of setting boundaries around you in order to keep good things from you. He is setting boundaries around you because he knows that those things are like poison in the human soul. And if they grow and they go unchecked and they go unrepented of and they're nursed and coddled and cultivated, that they will kill us. To live in these ways is to live in a subhuman way. And Jesus is inviting us to experience fullness of life in him. That's what's happening here. So with that framework, let's look at what Jesus lays out this morning, the spirit of immorality or lust at work in us. The second of these six temptations that Jesus identifies as poison to our hearts is the spirit of immorality at work in our lives. Now, I want to just state this. Uh, This is a word for everyone. And not everyone necessarily struggles with this at the same level, right? Like within your life. But this is for everyone for two reasons. Number one, you will walk with someone in your life who struggles with this. And you need to be equipped with the truth of the word as to how to stand with someone and press them toward obedience to Jesus. That's, that's really important. So you need this for that reason. Secondly, you need this because this actually highlights a whole uh, list of how sin works in our hearts and the radical, costly nature with which we need to seek to fight against it. So you might not struggle with uh, sexual immorality and lust in that way, but there are places in your soul where the principle works in a very similar manner, and Jesus' invitation is for you to see this is how it is birthed and grows in me, and this is what is required by way of costly choices to pursue righteousness. So we all need this word this morning. The teaching of Jesus, this is also important for us here, is not the whole picture on what the Bible has to say about sexual sin, addiction, or brokenness. Meaning like this isn't the composite picture of what it means to uh, pursue victory in these places or even to pursue full obedience in these places. The Bible is full of other, other places that give us more insight as to what this is about. But this is intended to highlight several principles that I think are front and center, very important for us in understanding and waging war against lust. First, Jesus wants us to understand that immorality does not begin in the actions. Immorality does not begin with actions. That is really important from what Jesus is putting on the table here. The second thing that we need to see is that Jesus invites his disciples to make radical and costly choices to remove anything from your life that stirs up sin and lust. These are really important. So these two things are what's front and center here. Look at the top of page two. Like the teaching on anger, we must understand that Jesus is seeking to extract a poison from the human heart that has the potential to grow in us and cause destruction to our souls 
and to the relationships around us. So the Bible gives us this composite picture. And I'm not going to lay out all of the verses for you here. Uh, you can, there's, there's a lot out there that you can navigate this, but I want to give you a, a, a definition of what immorality is related to the Bible. And then we're going to talk about how that works in the place of lust in the human heart. So the Bible teaches very clearly that immorality includes all sexual activity, including physical, verbal, I would throw in our context, technological, that happens outside of the covenant of marriage, which is a lifelong commitment before God and before people. It is a covenant between one man and one woman for life. All sexual activity outside of that, it, the Bible puts under the umbrella immorality. Okay? So when Jesus is talking about this here, he's, he's bringing us into this biblical portrait of anything that is practiced outside of the covenant of marriage is immorality. The reason that the Lord draws boundaries for our sexuality to be expressed in this type of covenant is that he knows, and Jesus is the great understander of the human condition. Nobody knows us like the one that created us, okay? So his boundaries are meant to produce flourishing and joy and wholeness, and when he puts a boundary, it's for a reason. He knows that any it inside of that covenant commitment lifelong between a man and a woman, that is the only place where expressing sexuality leads to good and enriching for the human soul. Any other kind actually produces destruction, defilement, defilement of our mind, our, our heart, our bodies, we're, we're invited to see through the scripture. And it devalues others in our relationships as well. And so Jesus is very clear and he wants us to, uh, we're invited to see with him that the practice of any kind of sexual uh, behavior outside of the bounds of marriage is immorality. Now, letter E, sexual immorality is not neutral or innocent. It brings destruction and defilement to our own soul and to others. Over time, it will cause us to experience real loss. Now, this is what we don't understand often, right? Oftentimes, with these kind of areas of sin, we think uh, if it doesn't hurt myself or someone else, it's got to be okay, right? Like, if it's two consenting adults and we're just having a little fun, like, it's going to be all right, but what we don't understand is what happens to our souls, our minds, our inner worlds as we begin to share that outside of the safety of the covenant of marriage. What happens over time is there are doors that get opened to darkness, to defilement, to dullness. And so we have to see it that way. Let me just reiterate again here. The positive vision of the Sermon on the Mount is the blessed life. Okay, like we don't want to be like, let's not get too weighed down heavy here, right? The vision that Jesus is putting in front of us is the blessed life, meaning whole, satisfied, full, complete, alive. We are called by God to participate in the blessedness of God's own life. This includes having like a vibrant heart, a mind saturated in the truth, our desires conformed around that which is good and right and whole and leads to life. Okay, so Jesus is putting that vision in front of us. And he says, you are welcomed into experiencing that. And now he's showing us things that get in the way of that growing in us. 
Immorality is dangerous because it's growing nature. This isn't something that we can just dabble in and control later, apart from true active repentance. And again, repentance is not just saying you're sorry with no intention or no desire to lay hold of the grace of God and move forward in that area. That's not true repentance. That's hoping you don't get caught and hoping you don't get judged for something. Repentance is, that is sin. It is outside of God's created design. I acknowledge it as sin. I receive God's grace and his forgiveness. And then I set myself to obey God. Again, we may not get free right away. We may stumble. But in that moment, we are fully accepted before God fully loved before God, and we have access to his, to relationship with him and his life. But this is a big deal. It's not just something, like I said, we can dabble in and then hope to control later. The nature of immorality and the nature of sin is that it grows as our hearts and minds are dulled and darkened. Romans 1 gives the, uh, the most a specific portrait of the growing nature of sin in the Bible. What we see is uh, Paul invites us to see that the wrath of God is expressed against those who suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. And then what he does is he shows us that there are layers in which those who have suppressed the truth are handed over to greater measures of depravity in the way that they behave, in the way that they uh, act, in the way that they live. And that is expression of God's judgment. We see that it grows in its nature. So this is a significant deal. Look at letter F. Jesus then here declares that whoever looks at another with the purpose to lust after them has already participated in the spirit of immorality at work in their soul. It is at work in them, right? Like the seed is present there. He's saying this is not just about the act of adultery itself or the act of immorality itself. He is saying what this is about is how the heart works before God. And when you see this reality playing itself out, the spirit of immorality is already at work. So he says, whoever looks at another with the purpose to lust after them has already participated in this. This happens whenever someone looks at another individual, either directly, right, like in real life, or again in our cultural moment, through technology, for the media, or or, sorry, for the purpose of lusting after them. This type of looking fuels the heart with sexual fantasy, and stirs up imagination and must be recognized and repented for as sin. Okay, take your Bibles and turn to James chapter one. It's on page 1011, if you're using one of those pew Bibles. What I wanna do here is pause and show how James, I believe, gives an exposition of what Jesus is inviting us to see in these verses. I think James is giving us a a picture of this at work that shows us how the initial look, you know, anyone that looks at for this purpose, the spirit is already at work within them, the spirit of immorality. And James is going to lay out how this happens. And I just want us to see this because I believe to have greater understanding of how this works in us, we can seek to uh, step into the invitation that Jesus has for us. James outlines the escalating and growing nature of sin or lust in our hearts and promises that God will give the crown of life to those who remain steadfast under such temptations. Look at James 1, verses 12 to 15. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast or faithful or perseveres under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, 
which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's walking through that test, I'm being tempted by God because God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Now, verse 14, he's going to lay out how that testing actually comes about in your life. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And so James exposits, in some ways, what Jesus just uh, gives the summary statement of in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, or James is coming along and saying, hey, here is how this progresses in the soul. And I just want to highlight what these are for us. The first stage we could see here is lust begins to stir in the human heart and in the mind. We're lured, James says, by lustful desires occurring as the imagination is stirred up. We casually begin to think on the possibility of walking out lustful actions. Right? There's a desire here. Satan would, would desire that our fleeting thought becomes a sustained habit or a pattern of thinking. There is a vast difference we need to know between a momentary wrong thought and being enticed and captured by it. So James says this starts with a lure. Right? We're lured into something, a desire, a, a, a thought. Right? Then it grows, stage two. This becomes a little more sustained as we become enticed by desire. The fleeting thought might become sustained and captured in a fantasy or our imagination is stirred up as it relates to immorality. Look at the top of page three. Then there comes a conception point James talks about. He uses the image of a baby being born. That's, that's what's happening here. He's saying it, it's conceived. It moves from ent- uh, luring and enticing to something becomes conceived at a moment. I think this is before the actual act comes, to a, de- comes a decision point. This is a point when the action becomes conceived in the heart and mind. This is the moment when the action of sin becomes alive in us at a new level. Stage four, we begin to act. Right? The desire gives birth and the act of sin becomes seen to all. Right? When, when a baby is born, it goes from being hidden inside to now it is uh, uh, alive in a different manner out in front of everyone. Now this is important to understand that Jesus is stating uh, in his teaching that the principle of this sin has been alive in us prior to this point and needs to be dealt with according to radical principles. Right? So Jesus is saying all the way back at luring and enticing. When we're lured and enticed by our desires, Jesus is saying that is already the spirit of immorality at work in the soul and needs to be dealt with with severity and costly decisions. That's what Jesus is getting at. However, when immorality manifests itself, when it begins to... Uh, manifests itself in action, the effects become more significant, both for our lives and in the lives of others. The next stage, we see that sustained activity in this, outside of repentance and waging war against it by God's grace, sinful choices become habituated in us. It grows, right? They become mature. They begin to grow up. One thing that many of us don't understand is that our capacity for sin is progressively enlarged in us as we act in accordance with this. Think about addictions, right? Addictions are dangerous because the thing that satisfied you once doesn't give you the same satisfaction down the road. Right? It takes more. It takes uh, more frequency, more quantity. Anyone that's struggled with this understands this principle. Right? When sin uh, is, is unchecked and grown, it becomes habituated in us and it enlarges. This is 
what James is getting at here. Over time, they might become ingrained in patterns and habits that become much more difficult to overcome and have victory in. This wounds our conscience. Again, this is all outside of the state of repentance. This is what I'm talking about here. Outside of repentance and seeking to grow and wage war according to the grace of God. This is if we are complicit there or complacent with. It wounds our conscience and dulls our souls as we become more comfortable in sin. This is what Paul talks about in 1 Timothy when he says, uh, people have a seared conscience, right? We take our conscience and over time, if sin is allowed to grow and habituate, it's like taking a branding iron to the conscience that God gave you and telling it to go away. You sear it to where it doesn't act in the same way. The last is there's consequence. As sin grows, it brings death. And death here is both in this life and in the life to come. Immorality progressively destroys us as we reap more consequences. So Jesus wants us to be aware of sinful tendencies and the spirit of immorality at work in us in the initial stages. He wants us to have our antenna up in the lured and enticed places. He's saying, when you're lured and enticed, what James is gonna come along and say, Watch for it there. Ask for big warning lights there. And when it is in that stage, deal with it with severity and costliness. Even to things that are valuable to you or costly to you. We're going to see here in a minute. To remain complacent. I want us to hear this. To remain complacent to the movements of lust at work in us and imagine that we are okay is a dangerous place to live. If there are places in your life where you are banking on the future grace of God, but unwilling to repent of it or seek to walk in obedience there, that is a remarkably dangerous place to be. That is a remarkably dangerous place to be. The Bible is full of warnings about what happens in our hearts when we harden them to the truth and the voice of God in those places. Go read the whole letter to the Hebrews. The whole letter to the Hebrews is a a commandment and a, a pleading, an exhortation to those who are being tempted to draw back and return to an old pattern of living saying, hey, when you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart to it. Don't stop up your ears and imagine that there will come a day down the road where you can just claim the grace of God. That is a destructive and dangerous place to be. And Jesus wants us to be aware of that and live there as we pursue him. The testimony of scripture is that Sin is, or lust is, like a cancer that has the potential to kill us without the proper treatment. So Jesus then invites us into applications or practical steps to overcome this spirit in partnership with his grace as we see it at work in us. He invites us to understand several realities as we're called to partner with his grace in actively resisting the spirit of immorality in us. The first truth that Jesus invites us to understand, and this helps us in waging war against immorality, is the role of the eye in the battle for for purity. Jesus teaches that immorality is at work in us at the beginning stages with regards to what we look at. Jesus says, did you notice that? Anyone that looks to with the intent for lust, anyone that sets their eye, right? What you give your eyes to has a profound part of what goes on inside of your heart, particularly as it relates to the spirit of immorality. Look at Job 31 here. Job has this wonderful proclamation that he makes in Job 31, he declared that he had made 
a specific covenant with his eyes in order that he would not look at a woman to lust after her. Job 31, he says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Now, some, some of us in this room need to adopt this and take this up. You're going, oh man, there's places in my life where I struggle with the spirit of immorality and I am uh, lax or complacent about what I look upon or how I use my eyes or what I allow to enter in through my eyes. And the Lord's invitation to some of us this morning would be to make a covenant before God about what you will and will not look at. And one of the things that I want to be really clear about here is this needs to be specific. There needs to be a specificity to it that I believe allows us the freedom to walk in obedience to it. Like going, I'm not going to look at this website. I'm not going to take my phone into my bedroom at night. I'm not going to, you put the thing there. I'm not going to watch these kind of movies, right? Like you make specific intentions about how you will walk this out is what it looks like in your life. Look at Psalm 101. This one's going to get more, more intense for us. If we can get more intense. David vowed to live with integrity of his heart in his home. Hey, this is a beautiful verse. And I would love if this verse got integrated and like taken in to a bunch of us. And we said, this is the kind of people we're going to be. He says, with integrity of heart, I will walk within my house. Now think about it. Your house is the place where your guard's down, where you just need to relax sometimes, right? You're most familiar. Nobody knows. You can do things that people don't see, right? David goes, hey, there is an eye upon me all the time. The only eye that actually matters. The only eye that actually matters. And so when I am in my house, in secret places, when nobody could see or judge me for what I'm doing, when I'm most familiar, when I most need to check out and just like uh, numb myself for a little bit or like kick my feet up and relax, in that place, I am going to walk with integrity. And what does he say that looks like? Verse three, I will not set before my eyes anything Say anything, anything that is worthless. David says, you want to know how integrity of heart starts in the secret places? I'm not going to look at anything that is worthless. Hey, let me give a personal exhortation right here. This one's messing with me, really messing with me. Here's the personal exhortation. Would you start asking God to mess with what you watch. Does anybody have enough courage to ask God, will you start to show me what is worthless that I put my eyes on? Because here's the crazy thing about sin, right? It has this ability, and what we watch has this ability to shape what we think is good and okay and right and beautiful and awesome and all this. And here's, here's a fascinating story from this week in my own life. My wife and I sit down to watch a movie. I don't know what night it was, Thursday, Friday, something like that. And I'm like, literally, we can't watch anything. Like there's nothing to watch. Like every movie modern movie, you go on there and you look at the more details and every single one of them says drug use, sexual encounters, nudity, and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, nope, 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 nope. So I'm like, okay, let's watch a movie from the eighties. Here we go. All right. So, so we roll up a movie from the eighties, classic movie that 
we all love, say anything. And I'm sitting there watching it with this in my heart and mind. And halfway through the movie, this, you know, young 19 year old couple just graduated high school. They're on this romantic, whatever, like fling for the summer and they sleep together. And I'm sitting there watching in my soul going, man, this is the destructive power of this stuff. Cause it doesn't show anything. It just references it, but I'm cheering for them, right? I'm cheering for them to make it. What they have done is portrayed something that the Bible calls evil and told me it's beautiful and it's knit in my heart as, oh, shucks, isn't that sweet? What happens when that is the way we like live our lives and we take it in 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 and slowly the line gets moved way over here and way before we know it we are 35 steps over the line that is how this works that's what that commitment is with David what would it be like if we started asking God mess with what I watch mess with it because I don't want a drop of it. Because do we believe, friends, do we believe that this is like poison that kills humans, kills me, kills you, kills my children, kills our city? Do we believe that? Do we believe it? And do we believe that Jesus is inviting us into a way to be really alive, even if we look like remarkable weirdos for it. Even if we look so strange, it would look really strange if you gouged your eye out. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's inviting us to a way of being in the world that says, guess what? I have more satisfaction for you than the fleeting momentary tastes of those things. There's a profound relationship. I think this is why it matters. Look at number four at the bottom of page three. There's a profound relationship between your physical eyes, what you see, what you consume, and the eyes of your heart. Jesus desires that the eyes of our soul would be singular. We're gonna get to that in a little bit in Matthew 6, verse 22. Meaning he wants them to be focused on one thing. He wants them to be singular, whole, in their focus and unclouded by worthless things. Our eternal destiny is to see God. Hey friends, this is what we are called to have forever. This is our eternal destiny, to see God. This is what your eyes were made for. And we are so willing to let them be like clouded with things that are like, eh, it's not so bad, right? It's not so bad. It's not so bad. Here's one of the places that I've thought about related to what I would like for myself and I would love for us as a people. I wonder so many times about why this feels difficult to us is because we are so used to living with like clouded, dull, um, apathetic, lethargic hearts that we don't know what it feels like to be alive, right? Like what it feels like to be invigorated by the truth of who God is and life in him, right? It's like sometimes if you've been eating really poorly for a really long time and you just always kind of constantly feel bad, and then you start eating well and you're like, oh my gosh, this is what I should feel like? like I didn't even realize that. That happens when you get older, some of you young people. <laughs> I think that's what happens in our souls sometimes. So let's look at the second truth, top of page four here. Jesus then invites us 
The first thing he shows us is the eyes have a really powerful and important part in this. The second truth that Jesus invites us to see in relation to resisting the spirit of immorality is the necessity to make severe and costly choices to pursue wholeness. Again, if we don't understand the nature of sin, its poisonous effects on our souls and in our relationships, and we don't understand the commitment of Jesus to our ultimate joy, then we will misunderstand the nature of these exhortations. Jesus is not here promoting self-mutilation. He's rather teaching his disciples to attack sin and temptation with the utmost severity. He's inviting us to respond to sin and its presence within us with the tenacity and severity that's equal to its destructive power. He's saying, if this thing is gonna kill you and you see its presence in you, what would you do to get rid of it? Right, if you, if you walked into the doctor this afternoon and you got the news, the life-altering news that you had a tumor that was growing and there was one radical, costly uh, pursuit of wholeness. It was guaranteed to work, but it was going to cost you a ton. You would do it, right? You would do it. This is what Jesus is inviting us to see. These include, letter F, costly decisions to lose what is valuable. That's your I. Right? Your eye is one of the most valuable parts of your body. To lose your sight is uh, life-altering. Jesus is saying lose what's valuable and necessary for productivity. That's your right hand, right? Think about this. Jesus is speaking to a poor, day-laboring society. That's the majority of the people he's talking to. So for them to cut their right hand off means they can't work. They can't, they can't go get a job tomorrow. Jesus is saying, guess what? It would be better. That would be better for you than to let this thing work inside of you and it produce death. That's what Jesus is showing us. To make these decisions will be difficult and demonstrate the narrow way that is costly to us in the present. But in light of eternity will be a truly wise decision. Many of us are unwilling to make the needed changes to their lives. Hey, some of you in, in your life, this would be a relationship or a series of relationships. Like there's a relationship in your life where you are crossing the boundary into sexual immorality. And Jesus would say, cut it off. Cut it off right now. Repent receive my forgiveness, you're right in standing with God, wage war on it, but it will cost you something. There are some of you, there are places that you need to stop going or like social situations that need to be removed from your life. Hey, I might be the weird one, right? I have all this like fear of missing out. Jesus goes, that's okay. It would be better. What we watch, I already talked about that one for a long time. Internet habits. Hey, this is one of those places, I'm gonna speak to my brothers for just a minute in a specific way. There's, there's application to my sisters in the room too, but brothers in the room. Hey, if you're struggling with pornography, be violent. Be violent. Like, take your phone, take a tack hammer to your phone. Seriously. Throw it out the car window. Throw it into the river. Go get a dumb phone. And if you go, well, I can't. I need a, a smartphone for my job. Go get a different job. It would be better for you to work at McDonald's, Jesus would say. Make serious, serious commitments. Like, don't play around. It's not something that can just be like left to the side for a season and then dealt with later. Jesus goes, this is 
massive. It's important. It is killing you. Come and find life. Now, when you repent and you wage war on it and all that stuff, you might not have victory right away. That might have to work itself out over time. And that looks like you repenting, coming back, confessing, find a few friends that you can walk with and confess it to and go, I'm, I'm gonna step towards this. And then receive his grace again and set your heart to do it. I had a, I had a friend, I remember this so, so vividly. I had a friend uh, 15 years ago who would not take his computer home with him. This was, this was back before phones had internet, right? So you're like, that doesn't mean anything. Okay, so like the, the internet did, didn't come onto your phone yet. He would not take his computer home. And I remember him leaving our house and going because he's like, oh, I had to send this email. He would drive up to work, open his computer, send the email, put it down, and then come home. Talk about inconvenience, right? Doesn't matter. He bought into, it is better for me to be alive than it is for me to have convenience. Look at letter H, and then I'll bring us to a close. Jesus is declaring and will declare that discipleship is costly. We talk a lot about the cost of discipleship. Right? Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a beautiful book called The Cost of Discipleship. Rarely does anybody ever talk about the cost of non-discipleship, though. Which one costs more? Right? Have you ever thought about that? We, we do talk about the cost of discipleship, and it is costly. To follow Jesus costs something. But to not follow Jesus costs way more, way more in death, in effects. And this costs, friends, I I want us to like, I want this to hit us. It costs in this life. And I mean that by like dullness in our, our souls, apathy, lethargy, all those kind of things, fracturedness in our relationships. Even for believers who do not pursue wholehearted obedience, there will be costs in the age to come. Go read 1 Corinthians 3.15. Paul says that anything that burns before the presence of God that we've built with wood, hay, and stubble, he says they will suffer loss. I don't want to stand in Jesus' presence and suffer loss. That sounds like a way worse cost than not being, having my conveniences, not getting to watch all the movies I want to watch, not being up and up on all the cultural commentary that's going on. I would much rather stand before Jesus with a vibrant, alive, pure soul than get all those things and either suffer loss now or suffer loss then. Amen. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand. Hey, this is, a, this is a weighty word. I feel it up here. Um, what's the famous phrase? Hard words make soft people. I just want us to take a moment and receive this from Jesus. Actually receive it together as a family. And then I, I think there, there are some of us in the room this morning um, that need to renew a posture of repentance in some of these places. I don't know if that's uh, an actual, like expressions of immorality in your life and a need to bring that into the light and repent and pursue obedience to Jesus there. I don't know if it's like pornography or 
uh, being lax in like what you're taking in and what you're letting that inflame in you. But the beautiful reality, and this is the beautiful reality of what we get to celebrate every week when we come to the table, is that Jesus' forgiveness covers. It actually does cover. So in a posture of repentance, when we go, Jesus, that is sin, and I turn my soul from that, would you enable me to walk in obedience? We get to receive fresh the full acceptance of God our Father in that moment. We get to delight in it and joy in it and celebrate in it. And we're gonna come and do that through the elements this morning, but I want us to just take a moment and respond to the Lord. So before the Lord, if you just even need to open your hands, some of you maybe, before the Lord, just say, Lord, here I am. I want to be whole. God, I believe that the the end design for me is to see you. God, would you begin to stir in my soul, convict, convict, renew, restore me. There's some of you in the room that need to repent, need to repent of places of tolerating and tending to a spirit of immorality in your life. And again, repentance looks like that is sin, confessing it before God. That is sin. Asking him to wash you in his forgiveness, and he does freely. Setting your heart to make costly choices. God, I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm to cut this thing off. This relationship, this relationship with technology, these kind of movies, whatever that is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut that off, God. Would you help me, empower me by your presence, empower me by your spirit to walk in wholeness? We're going to have people throughout the sanctuary that would love to pray with and for you. If there's places uh, where in your soul you're asking God for greater freedom, greater liberty, greater victory to experience his love and his wholeness uh, in in those places, we're going to respond through singing and we're going to come to the table this morning. Because on the night that he was betrayed and given over to death, Jesus took a loaf of bread, he broke it, And he said, this is my body broken for you. For the sins that you have done in your body, every one of them, take this and eat. And Jesus then took a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Every one of them, come and drink. And if you believe that, if you put your hope in Jesus, your faith in Jesus as your only hope before God for forgiveness and salvation, you're a Christian and we want to invite you to come and take this meal with us. The way we take at Redeemer is you tear a piece of the bread off, dip it in the cup. We'll have wine in the stoneware, juice in the glassware, servers up in the front, in the middle and in the balcony, and then a gluten-free to my right over here. If you're in the room and you don't believe that, we, we ask that you not come and take this meal. This meal doesn't set you right with God. There's nothing uh, magical about this meal. The, the substance of what we're doing is in the belief and faith in Christ. That's the substance. And so we would invite you to put your faith in Christ this morning, to lay your life out before him and say, I am a sinner in need of grace. Would you come and give it to me? And if that's where you are this morning and that's real in your life, come and take communion with us for the first time. We would love to celebrate with you. But if that's not you, stay in your seat. Don't feel pressure to come and and be a part of this. I'm gonna pray one more time for us. Servers, you can come forward and then we'll respond in those ways. Lord Jesus, would you come and give us your life? 
Holy Spirit, would you move among us? Activate more of your presence in our minds, in our affections, in our wills, in our desires. God, would you enable us and strengthen us to walk in your ways? God, would you embolden us in a posture of repentance to receive your forgiveness fresh? God, would you speak to us this morning? Hey, and one of the ways that the Spirit manifests his presence in our lives is through the conviction of sin. And so if you feel the Lord stirring in your soul, that is the Spirit of God at work. That is the Spirit of God. Acknowledge that. Receive it. Ask him for more of it. He is at work in those places. Just respond to him and say yes. You can come forward when you're ready. Again, we'll have ministers throughout the sanctuary that would love to pray with you and we'll respond in song and at the table.